0: You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back
1: to the Redeemer Theological Academy. In our last uh, two lectures, we've been talking about Isaiah chapter 25. So we continue with this great chapter. We pick up at verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, as we talked about last time, this message of behold, this is our God. This is the true preaching about the person and work of Christ, who God is and what God does. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Yahweh's salvation. God who comes to save us from our sins. And so this language of behold, we're putting before you the vision of Christ, seeing the invisible reality in the visible realm by hearing the preaching of Christ. Of course, John the Apostle, when he had the revelation, the apocalypse, he saw the ascended Lord. And as we began to talk about last time from chapter 5, where one of the elders said to John, weep no more, behold, the lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Again, that's Revelation chapter 5. Now notice what John sees. He sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees the root of David, who has conquered. He sees the enthroned lamb of God. But of course, he conquers by the atoning sacrifice. So, he is the Lamb who's standing as though he had been slain. So, this is, Behold your God. This is the message that the elders are giving to John when he is seeing this revelation, the ascended Christ. Now Later on in Revelation chapter 7, that same message, the preaching of the person and work of Christ. So, that John writes, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And he goes on and says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is the language of Isaiah chapter 25. He will swallow up death forever, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And of course, as we just read, it will be said on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, this salvation that we have been waiting for, we've been waiting for since the book of Genesis, since the death that was brought into the world and the toil and the affliction and the pain, all because of sin that entered into the world through Adam and Eve. That promise that there would be a Savior, salvation would come in the seed of the Virgin. So Genesis begins with that promise, and as you go through the whole book, you have the saints of old who die, waiting in anticipation for the fulfillment of this promise. Then we get to the end of Genesis in chapter 49, in which we are taught by Jacob to confess, I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. And now, in Isaiah 25, we are rejoicing because we see the salvation of Yahweh. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus who has come to save us, the one who removes sin and swallows up death forever. Later on in Isaiah 52, you have this this promise that's given in the, the crucifixion of the Christ, who undergoes death to undo death for us. And of course, at the beginning of Isaiah 52, Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God so that it's in the crucifixion. It is in the suffering and death and rejection of Jesus, the Lamb who has been slain, in which we see the salvation of our God. This is the holy arm that is revealed to us, the one in which the saints of old had waited, and the saints of our day continue to be glad and rejoice in, so that we would see this visible reality at the end of time, in which we will see the manifestation of this Savior in the resurrection of our bodies that are raised from the grave and the tomb. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, you waited for this, this salvation to be revealed, the salvation of God in the mystery of the Incarnation. Now, in the New Testament, you have Simeon, for example, who is waiting at the temple, waiting for this promise to be fulfilled that with his own eyes, he would see the salvation of our God. And in fact, in Luke chapter 2, we have that song of Simeon, in which he rejoices and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And when does Simeon see the salvation of God? When he takes up the salvation of Yahweh in his arms. That is Emmanuel, the Christ child who is Saviour the one who comes to save us from our sins. So Throughout the time period of the Old Testament, that was temporary, that God had set into place types and shadows of the reality to come, that they would see in the shedding of blood of the sacrificial animals, the person and work of the Christ, so that now in the time of the New Testament, the worship has changed. We no longer have those ceremonies and rituals that were temporary, Instead, we have the reality, and the worship in the New Testament is clearly to believe and to trust and to hope in God's mercy that is all given to us for the sake of Christ. God is merciful to us because Jesus has come in the flesh, taken our sin away, died on the cross, and then imputes And gives his righteousness to us and pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. That we would be able to have eyes to see the salvation of the Lord in the incarnate word. That we would have ears that are able to hear his voice and hearts that believe the promises that are all fulfilled in Christ. Now this is what Isaiah was trying to instill in the ears of his hearers. That there will come a day when we will be glad and rejoice, and death will be no more. Yet in our day, we still see the ramifications of sin and death. It still lingers around in this fallen creation. And so just like in the days of Isaiah, when we hear those words in our day, we anticipate and rejoice in that last day, where all of this will come to a completion, in the resurrection of the body. And death will no longer have any type of dominion over us. For we know the reality that Christ has conquered death. And those who are in Christ are a new creation. And there is no condemnation. And so that's the, the apocalypse, the, the revelation that John saw, this reality that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And those who are in Christ are with him because he is Emmanuel who comes to dwell with us. Now back to the text of Isaiah chapter 25. We pick up at verse 10. Isaiah writes, For the hand of Yahweh will rest upon this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. Now, of course, as we've talked before, this this action of God, this salvation of God is revealed in a Savior. This imagery of a hand, the imagery of an arm, as we just talked about from Isaiah 52, that the arm is God acting strong and mighty to save. So that now this image of a hand, the hand is that which creates. The hand is that which holds and protects. This hand that acts is the revealing of the Savior that saves. So later on in Isaiah 26 in the next chapter, (laughs) when we eventually get there, once again you'll have the same imagery, that, O Yahweh, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see the zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. That's Isaiah 26, verse 11, in which you're talking about the person and work of the second person of the Holy Blessed Trinity, who is the hand of Yahweh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, once again, back in Isaiah 25, where we started in verse 10, it says, The hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain. Like we've said before, that the image of a mountain is a kingdom. But in particular, this mountain is Mount Zion. And we're talking about spiritual Zion, not earthly Jerusalem. We're talking about the heavenly city, which is the church. For the hand of Yahweh will rest upon this mountain. He will be and dwell in the midst of his people in his kingdom. And so, therefore, Moab shall be trampled down in his place. Now, when we talk about Moab, Moab is kind of the epitome of the unbelieving, ungodly, even as we've seen in the synagogue as the times of Jesus. So that the ungodly, the unrepentant, are those who refuse to listen to the word of God, who hate the light, but love the darkness now when we go back into the old testament and we look at moab moab is this epitome of false worship idolatry this is the worship of the moabites and remember satan is the inventor of idolatry satan is the one who desires to take us and capture us in his darkness Thus, Moab followed the doctrine of demons. The evil demon prevailed over Moab, keeping Moab captive in the darkness, just like all the earthly kingdoms that did not know about the coming kingdom of God. If we go back to Genesis chapter 19, we learn about Moab being the son of Lot, along with Ammon. Now, remember in chapter 19, Lot and his two daughters are rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But then Moses writes and says, Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Now, the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And so we know of Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. There is a family connection all the way back to Lot. And ever since those days, there are always trouble between the Israelites and the Moabites. And of course, the Ammonites. It is from this point in Genesis where the Moabites and the Ammonites go their separate way. They no longer listen to the voice of Yahweh. They no longer have the word of Yahweh. They do not have true worship of Yahweh. They have the demon of Moab. And so this is the epitome of anybody who does not have God's word, who does not listen to God's voice. This is the ungodly. And so you'll see this in the days of Jesus, even in the synagogue, which refuses to listen to the voice of God in the writing of Moses, because that veil is covered over their eyes, even when Moses is read in the synagogue. Therefore, those who do not hear the word are like unrepentant, ungodly Moab. Now, Moses also gives us another picture of Moab, in particular in Numbers chapter 25. Now, remember when the Israelites are being taken out of Egypt, that God is bringing them forth into the promised land, that they stop in the area of Moab. And this is where the people of God encounter the false worship, that is the idolatry of Moab for the first time here. In Numbers 25, Moses writes, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. Thus, when we talk about Moab and the Moabites, we must keep in mind this idolatry that was introduced and tempted the people of God to false worship. Now what's strikingly interesting also, at the same time when the Moabites were engaging in false worship, remember King Balak, he hires Balaam the prophet for hire. He's kind of like a (laughs) a rent-a-prophet. And he hires Balaam to speak a curse against the Israelites. But remember, he cannot speak a curse because every time he opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and speaks a blessing over the people of Israel. But what's striking is that when the Holy Spirit's coming upon him and speaking this blessing over the people of Israel, then in Numbers 24, the Holy Spirit also gives a prophecy of the coming Messiah. So in Numbers 24, at verse 16, Moses writes, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Now, here in this passage, we have a message about the Messiah. That here, Balaam, this prophet, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and uses him as an instrument to proclaim this prophetic word about the Christ. Remember, Isaiah the prophet, by the Holy Spirit, said, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So, that prophetic word that Isaiah proclaims is, Behold, this is our God. He is revealing to the people the God who comes to save, the only God who is creator and redeemer. So, when we keep this in mind, let us hear that same word that is echoing in the mouth of Balaam, in which Balaam says, I see him, but not now, I Behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. So here, Balaam is telling others what the Holy Spirit has given him to see. And he sees the Messiah, but not yet. He's off in the distance. He's from afar. And so he knows that this star will rise from Jacob just like later on when the Magi come to the east, and they have seen his star. And notice how he also then says, and Moab will be crushed. That's what Isaiah had said. For the hand of Yahweh will rest upon this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in this place. And you have a continuity here with the same Holy Spirit speaking these same words about the Messiah and the end of Moab. Now, when we talk about Moab, remember we said Moab is the epitome of idolatry, of false worship. So that when Christ comes, he will eliminate and destroy and remove idolatry, false worship. Specifically, when we talk about Moab, he will take out the false worship of Moab, and then you will have the conversion of the Moabites when the message of the apostles goes out. So that you have these foreigners, these Gentiles, who don't have the word, who are not waiting for Yahweh's salvation, but yet the conversion of the Gentiles, as those in darkness are brought into light, will come at the spreading of the word of Jesus, that message, behold, this is our God, behold, we have waited for his salvation. And so that is proclaimed by the people of God who had the word and proclaim it as it is now fulfilled, so that those people who never had the word would now hear and then would have eyes to see the incarnate word as the visible image of the invisible God. Now Isaiah 25 ends on this note. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But Yahweh will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his wall he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Now, we have this image again of a city. The high fortifications, the wall, will be brought down. They will be brought down very low and cast to the ground. Now Remember, as we've been going through these chapters, we hear about these cities, these earthly cities, that are trying to prevent the city of God from coming. Even Jerusalem itself is this valley of the vision, is this city that refuses to hear the word of God. Well, these cities must be removed, so that the heavenly city, the holy city, the Jerusalem from above, may come. And even this chapter itself talks about, in verse 2, You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And then again, Isaiah continues with this imagery saying, therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. So you have this whole bag of mixed metaphors, the language of, of kingdoms and cities and mountains. All of these are mixed together and Moab being a nation, Moab being again, the, uh, the epitome of all false worship, idolatry that tries to keep people in the dark, these dominions of darkness in league with the devil. For God's kingdom, God's city, God's mountain will come by the proclamation of his word. So Isaiah reveals this word to the people, that the people of God, the remnant, may continue to trust in the promise of salvation as they wait for the savior to be revealed this is the city of god the heavenly jerusalem mount zion the kingdom of god that comes through the proclamation of his word so you have a transition from isaiah 25 into isaiah 26 in which isaiah 26 opens with the words in that day this song will be sung in the land of judah We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Now, as we talked about before, this imagery of the city before being brought down, a a fortified city that is nothing in God's sight, that cannot stand against God. It must fall. But now here the contrast is between these earthly cities, these earthly kingdoms, that try to prevent God's kingdom from coming, and, on the other hand, the kingdom of God, the strong city, these walls and bulwarks of salvation that are put in place by God. So in this transition from these earthly cities to the heavenly Jerusalem, you have Moab, again, as kind of the, the whole apex of all idolatry, all false worship. It has now been put away. It is done away with. And now, as that city is no longer, we have a strong city, the city of salvation. Now, when the early church father, Eusebius, when he was commenting on this passage in Isaiah, He sees the strong city in our salvation directly connected to Jesus. In fact, he says that the city is Jesus, our Savior, who is our walls and bulwarks of salvation. Likewise, Cyril of Alexandria sees the same imagery tied directly to Jesus, who is the fortified and impregnable city, Christ is the strong city, and those fleeing from the devil's oppression run for refuge in him. Therefore, the way that Cyril looks at this is the people who are in the city are those who are singing the song, that is the church. And of course, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Now, Cyril will continue on this pattern by noting that Christ is sometimes called Judah, being of the tribe of Judah. For instance, in Genesis chapter 49, Judah your brother shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's son shall bow down before you. Thus, such a passage would be about Christ. And of course, the passage goes on to say that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And there's a direct reference, of course, to the coming Christ, the king who comes from the tribe of Judah. Now, when Luther looks at the passage, rather than seeing the city as directly referring to Christ, he sees the city as directly referring to the church. Consequently, the indirect reference would be, of course, to Christ. For Christ is where his people are located, or the people of Christ are located where Christ is present. For it is Christ who is in the midst of his people. He is Emmanuel. He is holy, and he makes his people holy who dwell in his presence. In fact, we see this kind of imagery like Luther's talking in the New Testament, in which in one place you have the body of Christ directly talking about the very physical, incarnate body, flesh and blood of Christ. Then, on the other hand, in another place, when you talk about the body of Christ, the image is used of the church. For the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church. Now again, both of these are, are very similar in their imagery, pointing to the connection between Jesus and his people. Where Jesus is present, there is salvation. So where you have the incarnate one made man, he is Emmanuel who comes to dwell with us. But where Emmanuel dwells with us, we are the people of God. We are the body of Christ, which is the church. So thus, when Isaiah says that the people in the land of Judah will sing this song, we have a strong city, He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Of course, the strong city is Christ. Of course, the strong city is the church. For where Christ is present with his people, there is salvation. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And of course, there is no salvation outside of his church. Therefore, in the next verse, Isaiah says, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. For only in Christ is there salvation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening. And may our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.